Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and thank you for choosing us for your listening pleasure today. Now, I've had a bit of a chest infection this past week, so I apologise for any rasping that may occur over the next 30 minutes or so. But luckily for my guests, we're not in the studio today, so I can't pass on any of my germs to them. I don't think you can pass on germs through a computer. My first guest is the author of six educational books, on historical subjects and 13 psychological thrillers. Her books have been shortlisted for many awards, including the Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger, and she has won the CWA Historical Mystery Award as well. She was the programming chair for the Harrogate Crime Writing Festival in 2009 and co-programs the Killer Women Crime Writing Festival. She's also the Guardian's crime fiction reviewer and is here to tell us about her latest YA novel under a pseudonym. It's Laura Wilson. Hello. Hello. Lovely to see you. We're usually lunching, Laura, when we see each other, aren't we? Which makes it sound very grand. But it's lovely to see you in a professional capacity. Yes, indeed. Without food. I don't think I've ever seen you without food before. Yeah. <laughs> I've not seen you without food either. Uh, it's lovely to have you here. <laughs> and my second guest was a successful theatre costume designer before illustrating and writing books. She is a Costa and Carnegie Prize winner and her books have been translated all over the world, selling over two million copies. These include I Coriander, Maggot Moon and Tinder. And here to tell us about her latest adult novel, it's Sally Gardner. Hello to you. Hello, hello, Joe. I'm really pleased to be here. <laughs> so lovely to see you again. And I'll do the uh, virtual introductions here. Laura, Sally, Sally, Laura, I'm not sure if you've, if you've met before. No, I don't think we have. We, have we, we never Laura? have, but if I can have just a fan moment for a second, I love Maggot Moon so much. <laughs> I just, it's one of my favourite books. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you, thank you. Uh, thank get you. the fan moment out of the way early, I say. <laughs> Let's just get that, get that done. Um, and over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to talk about your latest books. We're going to get some reading recommendations from you. And of course, we will do The Book Off, where each of you gets three minutes uninterrupted to tell us about a book that you love, that you think we should all read and tell us why. First, though, um, Sally, when you approach writing a book, do you know in advance 
if it's going to be a children's book or if it's going to be an adult book, or do you sort of have an idea and and let it percolate and think, oh, yes, this one falls into the adult category? No, I'm quite clear when I do my books that this is adult. And mm. I always was very clear about this. I, I have a real problem because of my name. <laughs> because uh, Sally Gardner is known for children. And there's a real, really, and publishers want to put my name on the book. And it's a very difficult one to sort of say, this is adult. And I hope the covers do it. And I hope the back of the book shows that it is. But it is one of those dilemmas that I have about this. But this is definitely, definitely an adult book. And it was seen and I thought of it as an adult book. And I I think it's quite important to make that difference. I, I, I think it, it's also, we are in a, I don't know if Laura would agree, but we're in a very strange time with YA as well. Because I think in a way YA has got, incredibly muddled and lost in a little bit of it and people are now just reading whatever they want to read I mean the bookcase is available online without anybody policing it they can read whatever mm -hmm. they want and um, so I'm very aware of that and I think you know yes young adults will read my book I have no doubt about that yeah yeah I, that is interesting and actually I'm I've always been in that camp because I love YA I've always been one of those people who goes yes it's a YA book as categorized but actually so many of them can just be picked up should be picked up by anyone that's that's always the camp I've sat in and I think maybe more and more as you're saying Sally that is happening would you say Laura yeah definitely I think when they've done statistics about who reads YA an awful lot of people who read it are in their 20s or or older yeah. I mean I read YA books and I think Sally's right saying that with everything online you know you're not seeing bookshelves in front of you and those categories have really broken down. I can see why they have to be there. And mm. I also wanted to make a division between the stuff I wrote, adult books, under my own name, and have a, a different name for writing YA. I thought that was important. Um, just to keep And really what a great YA name you've gone for it. as well. Well, yes, it was d deliberately chosen because Jamie could, of course, be male or female. And Costello was entirely Mark Billingham's fault. Because <laughs> um, well, I discussed it with him and he said, oh, you, this is what you must pick because he's massive fan of Elvis Costello. And also Laura Wilson. I mean, it's my own name and I've never when I've been married, I haven't taken my husband's name ever. And so mm. it, I wanted to be further up the alphabet, damn it. <laughs> you know, I think Gardner is great because you're right in the middle there. You're kind of on the eye line both literally and metaphorically. Wilson, eh, you're right by the skirting board. <laughs> yeah, me and me and Sally have done all right in the alphabet stakes really, over time, haven't we, G and H? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah perfect, um, <laughs> you're right where you should be. <laughs> but yes, Jamie Costello is a, is a fab uh, pseudonym and we'll, we'll come on to your book very shortly, Laura. Um, Sally, in, in this latest book, Weather Woman, there are themes of magic and illusion and science and so much more could you just set up the story for us please and perhaps introduce us to neva uh this is uh my publisher always says to me tell me what your book is about in one sentence and i <laughs> <Yes>. never ever <laughs> ever can um so this book is the uh, uh about a girl called neva friesland she's very young when we first meet her and she has a, we meet her in an, uh, on the frost fair 
1789 and she knows the ice is going she can feel the ice is going and she's very small and she can't understand why no one else knows this and uh, a tragedy leads her to be adopted by a clockmaker who makes automatons and it is this meeting that changes her life and his life and she has a gift it's of telling the weather in a time when no one looked at the skies. The sky belonged to God. You could make no judgment of it. You wore all your clothes because the weather could do anything. Um, and her, her interest in this is the beginning of people beginning to look at the sky in a very, very different way and predict the weather. And so, you know, her gift is magical. Um, but what do you do with such a gift? and when incredibly clever, when all you're really expected to do is get married. And so her way of dealing with this is to become a man. She becomes Eugene Jonas. As Eugene Jonas, she's phenomenal. She is utterly phenomenal. Um, except the trouble is she doesn't like women, though women fall in love with her. And the man she does fall in love with uh, is completely confused by all that he feels for her. So it's not only to do with the weather up above, but it's the weather of our sexuality as well. Oh, that's lovely. I mean, who? I, I wouldn't have wanted you to describe it in one sentence, Sally. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I want to come back and, and talk about the, the period that you set this in in, in just a moment. But, um, Laura, if I could come to you and talk about monochrome, perhaps you could introduces to Grace here in this story and set up her story for us. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, some books have a, a really short gestation period and you get the idea and you, you get going. This had a really long one because it started with something that happened to me in 2004. I began to lose the sight in my left right. eye. And one of the symptoms was that I lost my colour vision. And at the time, I was living in Covent Garden, right in the middle of London, which is very bright with all the restaurants, theatres, you know, you name it. And I could mm. walk along the street and just by winking, I could go from colour to black and white to colour to black and white. And it was frightening because if something goes wrong with something you've got mm. two of, you think, well, is the other one going to go too? And I thought, will I go blind? You know, I, I was newly single and I was really scared. Um, in fact, so scared that I didn't admit how scared I was until many years later. But anyway, that experience, the left eye couldn't be saved. I still do have the right one, thank God. But it made me realise quite how important colour is in our lives. And we take it for granted. But actually, it is a huge thing which makes a massive difference to how we feel, how we communicate to safety in both the human and certainly the bird world don't eat red berries whatever it is uh don't walk across when the red man's there um and just everything and i tried to imagine what a world would be like if we lost our all lost our color vision and what the doctors kept saying to me they didn't know why this had happened because it's quite unusual um they kept talking about toxins which made me start talk, thinking about toxins which could be anything. And I began to see all these reports about what microplastics may be doing to our brains. Now, I wrote this book mm. before COVID. Um, and basically, the similarities have become really slightly alarming. 
and, and what we now know about microplastics possibly crossing our blood-brain barrier has also become very alarming as well because um, they've found them in placenta and in sort of everywhere. So I began the book with a 16-year-old girl called Grace who looks out of the window and sees a sunrise, but she can't see any colours and soon nobody can see any colours. And it's about the effect that this has on the world and it's about how as whenever you have a disaster, there's always someone who's going to monetize that. Just a little bit of, little bit of sinister. Yes, I mean, I think <laughs> if I'd written this for adults, it would be sort of a straight evil corporation <laughs> novel. But I, I didn't quite want to, yes, to do yes, that. Yeah, yeah. But it's basically, yes, it's about what we're doing to our beautiful planet. Well, I have to say, Laura, when I was reading it, I, I actually did have to take a moment to look around the room and at the walls and the art on the walls and then look out at the garden and then look at the sky and think oh god you know it's so easy to take everything for granted but you know color is something I just don't think about it's just there isn't it and um yeah it really made me it really did make me think reading the book. it's there unless you turn out the lights yes no, and then yes. it's gone yes and and I think uh, I think that is a very interesting thing that maybe colour is not as fixed as we all think it is anyway, mm. that everybody sees a red in a different key or a different shade. And um, I, I look forward to reading your book enormously. I also think it reminded me of the day of the Triffids, that sort of awful moment where he looks out of the hospital window and, and realises he's totally alone, that everyone is blind and they can't see. And um, I, I think it's a fascinating thing to deal with, with colour. Mm. And I wonder if you still in your head, I mean, I wondered if you lost all your colour, do you still in your head see a yellow? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, the, the sort of, because even with my eyes closed, I can see a yellow. Um, and I, I know what a green is. But w w uh, whether that is um, memory built because it, it's not there, so it is my my idea yes. of this color. I find yes, I so find color I had fascinating. The, all the teenagers because one or two teenagers having more malleable brains than grown up people do start to see single flashes of red, and so they're the ones that sort of agree that they will help with this experiment, which will give color back to the world, and they think. They're doing something very altruistic, but it's actually not quite that simple. Um, and they have a lot of conversations about this. Do you still dream in colour? Um, and what happens? Will there be a generation of babies born who will never have seen in colour? And so colour colour will have just gone. And it is interesting that, that how, how do you have a, a memory of that? Um, and also we have a whole ton of language which is associated with, with colour. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 And so many things that we, we would just lose. Yes. I mean, in my book, The Weather Woman, I used colour for Neva's emotions mm. as a way of her uh, seeing people because uh, um, she mm. is on the spectrum. And um, I thought that was quite uh, interesting. You know, when she had no words for people, she could see they were soft like sunsets or that they were two storms that were coming together yes. and she was in the middle of it. And uh, I remember as a child feeling very, colour was very much something I associated with 
uh, rooms with people. Mm. Um, and I had this thing about H, Joe. You might like this, that it was green. H was always That's green. That's interesting. Oh, <laughs> I don't I like know that. why. H is... H is always green and C is always yellow to me. I've no idea why. <laughs> How funny. That's weird. That's, that's weird, isn't it? I, I oh, have, well, that's me. Yeah, no, I do have that bit of association with colour and music. So um, high notes are lighter colours and, and lower notes are darker colours mm. and sort of things like that. And I think in a world without colour, it actually would affect our ability not only the thing with people's moods, but also to listen to music as well. To just be aware of other, other affect, senses. affect creativity. Don't, completely. But yeah, it, I think it would the end um, <laughs> ruin creativity Also, what completely. it affects massively is eating. They've done quite a few tests, and if you if you don't know what yeah, colour yeah. things are, you can't always tell what flavour they are, because apparently the, the bit yeah. of your brain, which is associated with your senses, if you're a sighted person, something like 70% of that is taken up by colour. So seeing really, really is believing. And so if you're just confronted <laughs> by Amazing. a grey block of ice cream, it could be coconut, it could be chocolate, it could be, you know, <laughs> because we eat with our eyes. I once made my children uh, for Halloween, I made them a black jelly <laughs> mm. with spiders in it. Mm. And no one ate it. <laughs> no. I can kind of see what, yeah. It's like, I always think blue food is quite suspect. Mm. I remember as a kid going to a, a children's um, party. I must have been about seven and they'd ice the cake pale blue. And I just thought, well, no, that's, that's weird. That's not happening. <laughs> I'm not going near that. <laughs> like your black jelly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as well as, I mean, colour in our language, which we just mentioned, weather is also a huge part of our language we have we sort of have phrases about weather or we have weather terms that relate to, you know, other things. Um, and it's such a, and actually colour and weather are, are sort of go together as well, Sally. And I do think that I was, I've been thinking about the weather an awful lot more than I think I ever have over the past year or so because of what it's doing, because of obviously the effect of climate change on our weather here in the UK and then around the world. It really is something now that's become more than just, you know, a person in a nice suit on the television telling us whether we need a brolly or not. Yes, and I, I, I was very interested. When, I, when it was lockdown, uh, the sky became more colourful because there were no planes. And now the planes have all started, the colours are going. And in, uh, uh, in the period I'm writing about, which is uh, 1789 to 1813, the skies were much, much brighter. And uh, it was, it's been noted uh, by many diarists about how the sky became more gray. And for instance, in uh, 1813, about 1812, the snow turned black mm. because of the pollution from the sea oh, coal burning. Yes. And yeah. it fell as soot, as black soot, not white, black. And I I think that is something that really fascinates me. And also what the other thing that fascinated me was the way um, the Aborigine people see the sky and the way uh, that uh, it used to be the Romani way to see the sky and the way um, that Native American Indians saw the sky. And it is not as we see the sky. Mm. Somehow we have flattened it 
in our heads. But uh, they saw it as huge fishing nets of colour and that it was all connected. Even a plain sky would tell you what was happening all over the place. And we've lost all that. We, we don't have any of those um, innate abilities to know. We have a few things like, you know, red sky in the morning, da 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 But um, this was incredibly profound and a way of survival in a way for many of these communities. Anyway, I found that fascinating. And I wanted to use all that with Neva. Uh, I wanted to use the fact that she goes to see Turner and Constable and looks at it and goes, is that really how you see the sky? Yeah. Is that it? Um, and I think that's a, an interesting idea. Absolutely. You know, we have we used to be much sort of closer to the weather, mm. didn't we? Uh, literally, no double glazing, no, you know, and had much more of an effect. Mm. And, yes, and, and it we, seems to me we that we're slightly trees. getting back to that as yes yeah. as as we think well i can't turn on my heating because you know i'm sitting here with a hot water bottle in my lap you know um yeah and things like that and i think weather it, it's in shakespeare isn't it it's there's more of it there's more it's signs and portents and yes, people have much more storm. of a relationship with yeah. it that yeah and it's also metaphorical for the weather inside you you know, your emotional weather as well. Yes, that's what I very much wanted to deal with that because I think this whole set sexuality business at the moment that we're having, um, you are either this, that or that, is totally irrelevant. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. I, I think that, you know, it is so fluid throughout our lives of what we might be and what we could be and what we are. Why, why name it? Why name it? Why not just... Yeah, yeah. The, you know, my grandmother used to have a saying, which was great, everyone is queer except thee and me, but even thee's a bit queer. And I loved that. It was a northern <laughs> saying. <And> yeah. <laughs> it's right. She was right. <laughs> that reminds me of my nana a bit, actually, as well. For, she, she, was, she was from Yorkshire, and that, that phrase rings true. Yeah. <laughs> she had another one, which I did love as well. Because she was a teetotaler, and she had one. She said, "The cup that cheers but does not inebriate," which was tea. Thank <laughs> <laughs> oh, Yes, I remember that one. <laughs> Brilliant. I always like to ask my guests what they've been reading uh, recently and enjoying, giving them a chance to maybe shine a light on some authors we should know about or some books. Doesn't have to be something new necessarily, because uh, I've been delving back a little bit recently into some older stuff that I should have read. Um, have you had a chance to read much recently, Sally? Is there anything you want to shout uh, about? Well, look, I read so much research books that it's yeah. really quite... <laughs> I mean, I, the London Library in the old section on the Regency period seems to be all here in my house. So there's a <laughs> oh, lot Oh, I love to the read. London Library, don't you? <laughs> I love, oh, the, I London love the London Library. It's my favourite place. Anyway, um, so the book I... I, I love reading little books at the moment. I just get a joy from... Oh, there's one. And so the one I have reading, just started reading, is um, Nick Hornby's Dickens and the Prince, mm. which I love. Mm. I absolutely adore. It's such mm. a random pairing, but it really works. Um, as, you know, he knows so much about music and his love of Dickens. And... I have to here own up to absolutely adoring Dickens. And I lived in four Raymond buildings when I was a little kid where Dickens was a clerk. 
No. And I used to love the wow. idea of walking up the stairs and thinking, Mr. Dickens lived here. <laughs> and I remember, I remember at school, they said to me, and who's your uncle? And we only had books. <laughs> my father had a set of Dickens books. And I thought he was my uncle. And I remember saying, yes, Dickens is my uncle. Which, um, which, uh, <laughs> but the really loved, I've got to tell you one rather lovely story about this because I was at art school and um, I was asked to go to Bleeding Heart Yard to get the etching paper. I was doing a course on etching. And I, I, the man there was known to be incredibly aggressive. But anyway, I went there and I was charmed myself. And the place was very old. It had slatted boards where you could look down. And it was a total fire hazard. And this old man was in the corner. A very, very old man was sitting in the corner. And um, I said, gosh, this is in Dickens, this bleeding heart yard. And the old man who hadn't spoken at all said, Mr. Dickens gave me a boiled sweet. And I went, what? And he said, when I was a little lad, he came into this door and he gave me a boiled sweet. So there. And I, I mean, for me, it was just extraordinary. I felt like I had, in a way, touched history and met him. Yeah. It, 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 it was the most. So this book, I adored it. I absolutely, I'm loving it. And then the other book I really loved, a slight small book, but it was great. It's The Young Pretender by Michael Adetti. Adetti. And I love that. It's about an actor in the Regency period who was a, a supersonic star and then grows up and is no longer... You know, and it's about that, the situation. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, so Brilliant. I slip in these small books, which I... Yes. <laughs> yeah, lovely. I love a small book. We all do. We all we all admit uh, yeah. that we love a short book, don't we? I, yes, I do. I do like a short book. And what have yeah. um, you been reading and enjoying recently, Laura? Well, the, the, the small book thing definitely resonates with me because <laughs> uh, a couple of months ago, um, I had to review um, the Robert Galbraith, The Ink Black Heart, which is... 1,012 pages long. Um, and I had uh, my first book-related injury when I was reading the book in bed. I fell asleep and it crashed down onto my nose oh, no. and actually cut my eyebrow. Um, oh, and uh, it was it was really quite <laughs> shocking. I mean, the, the force... <laughs> Bloody hell. The force with this... This thing hit my face. I actually <laughs> did wonder if I was going to have a black eye in the morning. Uh, I didn't, thank goodness. There was nothing you couldn't cover up with makeup, but it would have Gosh. been, you know, as one of those, oh, I walked into a door and everyone's thinking, come off no. it. Well, a book fell on my face. Mwah, not good. Um, so, yeah, I'm with you about the, the short books, although I also love Dickens. And I think if I'd met that boy, the boiled sweet man, I would have wanted to touch him and then I did. never yeah. my hand I did. Again. No, that's the did thing. You? I good, did. Good. I said, could I shake your hand? He was very old. Yes. <laughs> and I just thought, oh my God, oh my God. And I, I, you know, I went back with such enthusiasm to tell everyone. No. no one went, oh yeah, Dickens, oh, more, yeah. oh no, 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 <laughs> But that's incredible. It incredible. It's the, the continuum through history. It's and and also, I, I had to say about Grey's Inn, which going back to the weather where I grew up was amazing because there were the pea super fogs and I, I I was very small and a very dyslexic little human being got things awfully wrong about nearly everything and I thought the fog was made up of all the dead 
that had um, lived in London and in Gray's Inn. And so when you went out, you put your hand out into it and it would disappear. So you couldn't see the end of your fingers because wow. it had gone. And I remember thinking that you could touch Dickens. You could touch all the ghosts if you put your hand out there. And uh, when I used to get very ill because it was so cold and we didn't have central heating. And I remember a fog came into the room and it was a green. It just hung this green ghost in the centre of my bedroom for the day. It stayed a whole wow. day. Yeah. It was me. Yeah. You can really see how people believed in ghosts mm. as, as much as they did, though. Yeah. It was like I, last year I went to Iceland for the first time and I suddenly understood why people believed in dragons. Yeah, yeah. Because the mountains seemed to be alive and I'd never mm. seen that before and I, I sort of suddenly got it. Yeah. You know, that uh, why this had been the case. Um, but no, for books, I've been, I have been reading short books and longer books. You know, much risk and not in bed, so <laughs> there are only more accidents. Um, I, I do read an awful lot, and in fact, I had to remind myself about about this. But the my new discovery um, is an author called E. H. Young, it's, and the book I read was a book called Chatterton Square, which I just saw mentioned by chance on Twitter. Um, and she was writing in the thirties and forties. And Chatterton Square is set in a town in the west of England, which I think must be Bristol, although it's given another name. And it's, it's set on the eve of the Second World War, and it's about these two families, one of which is very traditional. There's a patriarch who very much rules the roost. And the other family is this more bohemian family. There's a single mother, which must have been unusual then, who everyone assumes is a widow, but who actually isn't. And the patriarch really doesn't like his family associating with this other family across the way. But of course they do, because this other family appears so much more happy and relaxed and free. And it's just about what happens, how they change by interacting with these other people. And the, the wife of the patriarch, Bertha, is this very sort of mousy, just sort of listens to her husband. And you see her throughout the book she begins to change and to grow by the end of the book. She's completely, you know, and there's a point at the end where her husband says, well, what do you think of me? And she tells him. <laughs> and you almost feel sorry for this guy, almost, but, but not quite. You shouldn't ask. Um, Never ask that yeah. question. <laughs> yeah, no, you should. But no one should ask that no question. No one should it's ask that question. Um, <laughs> Um, and it, it was just it was just a brilliant book, and I've now got a couple of others by her, and I'm all excited to have oh, discovered this this new author, which I'm I'm really pleased about. Um, e H. And also, who was it again, Laura? E H. Young. Young. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I know don't know very little about her apart from that she had a very sort of bohemian lifestyle for the time, but apart from that, and you know, I've never come across her before. She's she's great. Brilliant. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thank you both for those recommendations. And now it's time for another, because it's time for The Book Off, where each of you is going to... (laughs) Sally looks scared. Tell us about a book you love and you think everyone listening should read. And you're going to have three minutes uninterrupted, if you choose to use all three, to tell us about them. Now, before we get into it, a little bit of admin, ladies. Um, We always uh, let the person who's travelled the furthest choose if they go first or second. Now, I believe... If I'm using me as the main location, uh, Laura has travelled the furthest, I think. I could be wrong, because Sally, you're Sussex? Hastings. Yeah. And I'm in Brighton. There we go. And I'm in Hackney. Yeah, so I think you get to decide if you go first or second. Um, I don't mind. I'm happy to go first. Step up. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> and as I said, you, you do get three whole minutes uninterrupted oh, if you wish to use it. But um, if you I'll are talk still quickly. talking at the... Uh, good. <laughs> if you're still talking at the three-minute mark, um, I'm either going to be ringing you out with the school bell or honking you out with the horn. So, Sally, at your three minutes, would you rather the horn or the bell? Oh, the bell. I, I, the horn really freaks me out. No, yeah, the bell. Okay. The bell for you. All right, that means you get the the horn then, Laura. Um, So I'm going to put three minutes on the clock. And just before we set the timer going, tell us the book that you're putting forward, please. Okay, this is The Book of the Most Precious Substance. It's by an American author called Sarah Gran. And it came out two days ago, I think. Published by Faber. Okay, brand, brand new. My goodness. All right. Uh, Well, then it's over to you. Three minutes on the clock. Off you go. Okay. Well, I wasn't sure I'd like a book about sex magic, which is how this was described, uh, because the occult's not really my thing. But after a few pages, I was hooked. It's a quest novel. It's set in the world of rare books. It's very well written, very perceptive. But what makes it really fly is the main character. She's called Lily Albrecht, and she's someone whose life has gone very, very right and then very, very wrong. Difficult childhood. Then she's become a best-selling author with a first novel. She has a wonderful relationship with Abel, who's this cool, clever, sexy academic. They're a smart young couple. They've got money, lots of friends. But then Abel starts to use lose his cognitive function. No one can put a name to his illness, but it's degenerative. After a few years, he's mute and incontinent. All their money goes on medical bills. America, no NHS. Friends desert them. Lily stops being able to write. She becomes a book dealer to keep them afloat. And the book she agrees to find for a mystery client is this book of the most precious substance. It's a rare 17th century textbook of magic. 
and it's rumoured to be the most powerful occult book ever written. It's a series of instructions for rituals involving sex, which if you carry them out properly and speak the magic words, will give you untold powers. Some of the wealthiest people in the world are willing to pay a fortune for this. So if Lily can get a copy, she'll be free from the money worries. And if she carries out the rituals, she'll be able to get her husband back to health. She teams up with a customer called Lucas, and there's a frisson there from the beginning. So together they hunt down the book, they travel across America and Europe, and they do these rituals they know about. And of course, Lily starts to get all her mojo back. She starts to enjoy life again. But the people who are interested in the book keep dying. The rituals become more difficult to accomplish and things get more and more dangerous until the eventual denouement. Okay, yeah, there's a lot about sex. To be honest, those descriptions were, I thought, the least interesting parts. But they're well done. They're not gratuitous. And they're from a woman's point of view. And if I'm honest, I probably wouldn't have liked this if it had been from a guy's point of view. But ultimately, this book is not about sex. It's about obsession and resolve and the choices we make or we think we make um, and the lengths we'll go to to get what we want and how we need to be careful what we wish for. Because what really made it was the ending. It's not a fairy tale. It's very realistic. It's all very realistic for a book about magic. And I closed the book thinking, yeah, that would so exactly be what happened in that situation. Um, and it's a terrific read, and I really, really recommend it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Very good. Very good. 20 seconds to spare, Laura. You really did race <laughs> through it. You were like... You were... <laughs> Fabulous pitch. Um, we'll come back and talk about that in a moment, but you can have a breather now. I think you need it. Um, and have some more tea. I'm going to put three minutes back on the clock for you now, Sally. And before we launch into it, <laughs> the, oh. I, I, you look so nervous. <laughs> I am. Um, I am. <laughs> just before we launch into it, tell us the book you're putting forward. I'm putting forward Raymond Radigay's The Devil in the Flesh. Fantastic. Um, All right. Okay. Three minutes on the clock. Over to you then. The novel takes place at F, a provincial town outside Paris, a story about a 16-year-old boy as affair with a married woman of 19 called Martha. It is set in the last year of the First World War, while her husband is still fighting in the trenches, not far from Paris. The imagery in it is extraordinary, the writing hard-edged as a diamond. The novel caused a scandal and still today has the power to shock. It became a runaway bestseller. Not many first novels received the accolades that The Devil in the Flesh did. Raymond Radigay was the eldest of seven children. At 15, he had his first affair, which became the basis for the devil in the flesh. Bored with school, he left to go to Paris, where he became embroiled with the literary and art world. He knew Pablo Picasso, Modigliani, among others, and his eventual meeting with Jean Cocteau that ultimately changed his life. He was introduced to Cocteau at an art gallery. He described the boy as having bad hair and a pocket full of screwed up poems that when he read to him convinced him he was a genius. Raymond Radigay had sketched out the early episodes of this book in 1919 but it was not until the summer of 1921 that he sat down to write the novel. There is a passage in it that foreshadowed his own death. He wrote, an untidy man who is about to die but does not suspect it suddenly puts everything around him in order his life changes, he sorts out his papers, he gets up early, goes to bed early and gives up his vice and those around him rejoice 
so that his brutal death seems all the more unjust. He was about to lead a happy life. His publishers decided to launch the book on a scale unknown in France. The strapline used was, I have discovered a 17-year-old author. One critic wrote, I don't care whether the author is 17 or 107. It's the book we have to judge, not his birth certificate. Rayna Maradigay said to John Cocteau just before he died, there is a colour that moves and people hidden in the colour. Cocteau asked him, shall I send them away? He said, you can't send them away. You can't see the colour. Cocteau said he died without knowing it. He was just 20. His age doesn't matter. This is a book that is timeless, yet it's a triumph. It trumpets in the culture of youth. Raymond Radigay was an extraordinary writer. His language simple, his cruel knife sharp on the frailty of love and the mismatch of man and woman. It is a book I have returned to many times and it always amazes me. Wonderful. Again, 15 seconds to spare, Sally. You brought it in just under the wire and what a fab pitch it was um, as well. Thank you so much. You can have a rest now um, because we're going back to talk about the book of the most precious substance, brand new by Sarah Gran. And <laughs> Laura, I love that you opened with, and I would have said the same thing, um, that you didn't think you would be up for uh, a book about sex magic, but actually <laughs> it was... Uh, Perhaps not quite what you thought. Now, I've heard about this book already. A few people have been talking about it and saying very good things, as have you. But I loved that what you were saying is, you know, it's it, it, not only has it got great characters in it, but that actually it's not a fairy tale. And you said, you know, having read it at the end, yes, that is what would happen. So it's got that it's sex magic on one side, but actually a sort of reality to it as well. Yeah, for a book that is about magic, it's actually very sort of grounded in, in reality. And just the complete random shit that happens in your life. You know, there this couple yeah. are, everything's going great for them. And there's suddenly this curve ball that this guy mixes up tea and coffee, he forgets where he's going, and slowly, slowly, mm. slowly, she realises that their lives are just closing right down. And they, you know, just dwindling, dwindling away. Um, yeah. And I can just see so exactly how how that might happen. And it's also very good on the world of rare book collecting, um, yeah. and the quite sort of strange characters that you find there, which I I I think um, the author has done a bit of herself. Um, yes. As she's been a book a book dealer and, and also set up a small publishing house, I think, to to publish this book in oh, America, wow. Sarah Graham. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so. And I I did like that you said you know it's the, the sex isn't gratuitous actually even though there's a lot of it and actually it's it's well done and it's from the female gaze as well. Yes, I mean it. There is quite a lot of it and there are bits where we get a bit sort of story of Oish. You know, and like, <laughs> like <laughs> hashtag lesbian BDSM or whatever. But um, yeah. you know, as I say, though, that they were fine those bits, but they, that wasn't what kept me reading. It, you know, mm -hmm. and if you like spicy books, really, Philip would go for it. Philip boots, this will really suit you yeah. for that reason. Sounds but, fab. But yeah. but it was it was just the journey and you know what happened to her, and she recovers her mojo in every way possible with writing and life and everything. But then, of course, at the end, it's that thing that life often gives us both more and less than we wish for, sort of in one and the same time. Yeah. 
That's a brilliant pitch. I really loved it, Laura. So thank you for that. And I loved yours, Sally. I, I don't know the devil in the flesh and in the flesh. And after hearing you talk about it, I, I think I absolutely need to. Um, the way you talked about the sort of imagery in in the book and the the hard edged writing that still has the power to shock um, is amazing for someone. Again, you know, we should maybe dwell on the age, but someone who was so young and that that managed to sort of produce this oh, oh amazing dwell work. on the age dwell on the age because it is extraordinary yeah um he is a brutal brutal narrator yeah. um he's cruel but he's cruel with the honesty of youth there's no lie in this right there's no fat there's nothing in it it's as lean as lean can be it's writing is shocking um yeah. and the nib goes in the nib goes deep into you and the uh, one image that starts in this book which i read it when i was 18 and uh i was totally blown away by it and and the copy i had though i can't find it he writes a little um essay about why do not dismiss youth and actually it is a forerunner to the youth culture that we're about to explode into mm. um and and the, the image was of a little boy the narrator on his father's shoulders looking up at the maid next door who's threatening to jump off the roof while over the way there is a funfair so there is all the, the joy of the funfair the lights of the funfair and the boy can't you know is looking at the maid but also turning so he's not going to miss the funfair, funfair. and there is that it's an extraordinary piece of writing yeah. and um I won't go into what happens, but it it, mm. it is, it sort of takes your breath away. And the the sort of quote from Cocteau is brilliant, and the fact that meeting him sort of changed Raymond's life, yeah. and unbelievable that he died at just twenty. You know, I mean, everything about it is sort of it's like a it's like it, a film, he, isn't he it? He really? got he got ill. Uh, he was doing the um, proof. It, it was delayed because the the publisher wanted to give it this huge. And also it was very shocking because the uh, the man who believed it was his wife that had the affair uh, became obsessed by this book. And the uh, people who'd fought, the French who had fought in the war, were very, very upset by it. There was huge legions of people going, it should be banned, it shouldn't be published. Um, and in fact, it sort of ruined their lives, this book. It, did, it had another life after he died. Right. Um, and and uh, it, it's a fascinating story. The book itself is a fascinating mm. story. Oh, yeah. I mean, it yeah. sounds like an amazing book. And then also everything that surrounds mm. the actual publishing of this book is That's in itself felt, a story. <laughs> I, I sort of felt I had to give... It wasn't as good. It, I couldn't just do the book. No. Because without sort of knowing yeah. <laughs> that this boy was so young. I mean, yeah. he starts this... He started publishing at 15. And amazing. he dies at 20. And by which time he's written a masterpiece that will, as long as books are published, will always be there. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Uh, yeah, I love love that. And, and that's a fascinating story. And I, I really want to read it. I really want to read both of these books, actually. You've both done an amazing job of, of selling them uh, to me. Um, oh, it's a toughie, as it always is. But I, th I think, on this occasion, I'm going to take the Raymond Radigate. I think I'm going to take the Raymond Radigate. The devil in the flesh sounds like... It needs to be read, and soon. Um, so I'm going to go and find a copy. And also, can I just say, it's not too long. 
Oh, yeah. it's not too long anyway. Yeah. A bonus. That's <laughs> definitely a bonus. I'm going to hunt it down. <laughs> um, thank you both again for those recommendations and all your recommendations. And here's two others for you. Weather Woman by Sally Gardner, which is out now and it's published by Head of Zeus. And Monochrome by Jamie Costello a.k.a. Laura Wilson, is also out now and that's published by Atom and they deserve a place on your shelves. Um, Sally, Laura, what an absolute joy it's been to spend this time with you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us and hopefully I'll see you in the flesh next time. Probably, Laura, uh, over a dinner. Yes, with food. Thank you very much. With food. And Thank Sally, you. maybe maybe we'll go for a little seaside walk at some point. I'd love that. I'd love that. <laughs> Thank you both. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.